0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Jeremiah 50. Jeremiah 50 in your Bibles. Today begins the first of uh, several weeks. It'll end up being four weeks, in fact. Considering the judgment of God upon the nation of Babylon. Now, we've been considering God's judgment upon the Gentile nation since chapter 46. But we must understand that Babylon is very different Babylon is the servant of the Lord, which he has used to judge not just the nation of Judah, but which he has used to judge all of the other Gentile nations of which we have spoken over the past many weeks. Babylon has enjoyed a special place of enablement and become the Lord's instrument of his judgment. But Babylon is also so much more than just the nation or even that city, that capital city that God used. Babylon... As we discussed this morning in our time in Sunday School, Babylon's an institution. Babylon is a philosophy. Babylon is an ideology. Babylon has history. And while there are any number of thorough expressions of Babylon's judgment found throughout the prophets, we can trace the legacy of Babylon going all the way back to those years just after the flood to the very end of Scriptures in Revelation 17 and 18, We find judgment in Ezekiel. We find the judgment in Isaiah. We find it in Habakkuk. We find it here in Jeremiah. And yet, as we look at Jeremiah's prophecy, we find a unique relationship. There's a unique clarity in the prophetic context that compels us to spend a little bit more time on Babylon than just we did on the other Gentile nations. Jeremiah's prophecy as it relates to Babylon seems, and we'll see this as we go throughout these two chapters, seems to be significantly farther reaching than just Babylon's fall in 536 B.C. to Medo-Persia. Seems to be significantly more far-reaching than that. And we don't necessarily see all of the same flavor of that far-reaching judgment in Ezekiel or in Isaiah, or even in Habakkuk to uh, the same extent. But what we find in Jeremiah 50 and 51 is a great deal of language that connects us strongly to Revelation 17 and 18 and the message concerning mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, and her downfall in the end times. So this series will be a, more than the, the series as a whole will be more than the sum of its parts. Not everything will make full sense in Jeremiah 50 as we look at it today. Not everything is going to make full sense in Jeremiah 50, the first half of Jeremiah 51 as we look at it next week. But Lord willing, by the end, and then perhaps combined with a few uh, references I'll make for you to listen to a couple of sermons from my Revelation series, uh, through that I, I hope that we'll get a fullness of an understanding. Of course, in my Revelation series, I came at it from the direction of Revelation. Here we're coming at it from the direction of Jeremiah 50 and 51, but I hope that by the end of this, we'll see that there's too much similar to ignore. So there's quite a bit to cover. Let's let's get rolling this evening in Jeremiah 50. The Bible says in verses 1 and 2, The word... That came, oh, excuse me, the word that the Lord spake against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken. Bel is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded. Her images are broken in pieces. So we find the word of the Lord against Babylon and against the land of Chaldea here. And the Lord declares judgment, right? He declares judgment among the nations. He says to publish it, set it as a standard, that this would be a flag, a sign of association. And the point of God saying this is that the judgment of Babylon is not a mystery as we might consider some of the other mysteries in the Bible. The mystery of godliness, like we considered this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The mystery of Gentile salvation, as we referenced this morning. Even the elements of the end time spoken in Daniel, which God told Daniel to seal up until the time of the end. This is not a mystery. It, we are going to learn more about it as it relates to Revelation 17 and 18, but this is not a mystery. The judgment of Babylon has been written for a long, long time. It's open, it's public, it's announced, it's known really since the beginning. That Babylon is taken, he says. Not Babylon will be taken, Babylon is taken. It is, it is the, the deal has been sealed. Babylon is taken. Bel is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces. Notice how quickly and decisively God turns the context of his judgment to the false gods of Babylon. And there's a unique thing about the way God mentions these false gods of Babylon as it relates to Babylon itself in the history of Babylon. He says, Bel is confounded. Bel is the Babylonian version of the Canaanite Baal. Bel is the Babylonian version of that, that, that father God, the God of gods type idea. And then he says, Merodach is broken in pieces. Merodach is a false goddess. Notice it says afterwards, her idols are confounded. Her images are broken in pieces. And what we likely see here, and what we can compare to Babylon of old, going all the way back to Babel, is the mother-child cult of any number of religious systems. We talked about this way back in Jeremiah 7, if you recall, because we, um, we saw reference to the weeping for Tammuz, and we saw a reference to this mother-child cult as it related to Israel and Israel's downfall in the mother-child cult. And remember, we talked about the advent of this system by historical tradition. This is not something that the Bible speaks of uh, um, Extensively, and so as I mentioned when we talked about this in Revelation, as I mentioned in Jeremiah seven, I'm going outside of what the Bible says explicitly, and we're going to root ourselves for a minute in the the historical traditions in in, in the history of the the cults. Really, the history of occultic worship, wor- worship is rooted in a cult known as the Mother Child Cult. Religious historians. Trace this all the way back to a man that the Bible does speak of named Nimrod. And we know that Nimrod's, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was at Babel. And he wielded a great amount of authority and power following the flood a couple of generations after the flood. And the, the occultic traditions state that he had a wife named Semiramis who was therefore Nimrod's queen and wielded great power in the region as well. Well, tradition also states that Nimrod met a violent death, and he met this violent death at the hands of others in the kingdom, but Semiramis was eager to retain her power. And they had a child together named Tammuz. And Semiramis, wanting to retain this power, sought to attribute the privileges of Messiah To Nimrod and to Tammuz. Now remember, everyone in that culture would have known the promises of Messiah. Noah was a just man. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham had several sons, and out of it was Nimrod was Ham's grandson. And so we we will find we do find, as we think through this process, that everyone within that generation would well have known God's promises. Going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And so Semiramis, eager to maintain her power, elevates her son Tammuz as the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, saying that Nimrod gave his life willingly and experienced a resurrection in the form of her son, Tammuz. Semiramis thus became the mother mother of the resurrected God. The image of her holding her son equal to his father was born. Semiramis uh, and her son were elevated thus to deity. Semiramis, the mother goddess, Tammuz, the only begotten son, And this woman was thus called by various names, the virgin mother, holy mother, alma mater, of course, meaning nourishing mother. And the highest title given to her, which is the one that we particularly referenced in Jeremiah 7, and then we connected it to Ezekiel, was the queen of heaven, the queen of heaven. And God spoke strongly against this idea of them worshiping the Queen of Heaven. An obvious perversion and counterfeit of the promises of Messiah through the Gospel. And we should not be surprised by this, as we spoke again in Sunday School this morning. Satan's counterfeit kingdom always works in this fashion, mimicking and perverting the promises of God. In fact, the entirety of Satan's kingdom, if you remember back to my, my preaching and revelation on the kingdom and the whole breadth and width of the kingdom, the whole of Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit. He has a counterfeit trinity. He has a counterfeit plan. He, he, he has a counterfeit everything. Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit divine kingdom. And so little wonder that he would create this counterfeit mother-child cult. And while much of this is based upon historical observation and not direct biblical authority, there's a general confidence rooted in the existence of the mother-child cult throughout history. And it truly is throughout history. In Canaan, we see it in a couple of different ways. We see it in Semiramis and Tammuz. Ancient Germanic cultures worshipped the virgin mother Herta, with her son. The Scandinavians call her Disa, with her son. The Egyptian mother was called Isis, holding her son Horus, the reincarnation of her slain husband Osiris. In India, the virgin mother was called Devaki, with her son Krishna. Also Isi, with her son Iswara. In Asia, the virgin mother was called Sibyl, and her son uh, Deo, uh, this one I I struggle to pronounce, Uh, there's too many vowels here, Deoias, I believe. In Rome, the virgin mother was Fortuna, her son Jupiter, Pur. In Greece, the virgin mother was Irene with her son Pluto. In China, Mu with her child in her hands. Even Mother Earth draws upon this queen of heaven idea for worship. Now, I mentioned already that in Canaan, Semiramis and Tammuz hung around. We also find Estarte and Baal within Canaan. Baal and his wife Estarte, and we find here the linking of Merodach and Bel, all the same idea. This mother-child cult, a perversion of the promise—a promise, as I mentioned, going way back to Genesis three fifteen—that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The promise of a blessed mother who would have a child who would rule the nations was known since the beginning, and it's little surprise that Satan would muddy those waters in something that resembles truth, but denies the power thereof. And that's the context of these two false gods that we find here beginning, that God immediately calls judgment upon Bel and Merodach. And as we look beyond just Babylon proper, and we look toward prophecy, don't lose sight of the fact that God references this mother-child cult as something that is under direct judgment verse 3 For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her which shall make her land desolate and none shall dwell therein they shall remove they shall depart both man and beast Now here in verse 3 we find something very interesting we find that God promises the judgment upon Babylon to come from the north Now Absent of any context, this should not trouble us any. Babylon uh, is typically the nation which is described as coming from the north, right? Uh, when we read in Scripture about um, a nation that would come from the north, as we talked about with Egypt, as we talked about with Jerusalem, we're normally considering Babylon. And the reason why we call Babylon as being from the north even though it actually stands at the same latitude generally as Israel, was the nature of the geography of the region. Basically, anybody that wanted to go from Babylon into Canaan would need to follow the river, the Euphrates River, up north into what we generally call Syria, and then drop down from the north. And this is because you weren't going to send particularly an army through the Arabian Desert. That just was not going to happen. Uh, The supply line that would be necessary to get through the Arabian desert with a bunch of people, uh, even with not a bunch of people, would be extremely difficult. You follow the water, right? You follow that which gives life. And so uh, any traveling to and from Babylon would be uh, up and down the Euphrates River. And then, of course, they jump onto the, the Jordan River going up and down through Canaan, and that is how people would travel in order to stay close to water for their animals, close to water for themselves. So Babylon would typically follow the Euphrates River up, then come down to Israel from the north. In this case, history informs us that the nation of Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia. I said 536 earlier. It's actually 539 B.C., and uh, the Medo-Persian Empire did, in fact, occupy some of the territory that was north Of them. But as we continue to study, I I remind you, it will become very apparent that this is not directly the overthrow of which God is speaking. And the first most apparent reason why we we believe this to be true is because of what we read next in verses 4 through 7. The Bible says this In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together. "'Going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. "'They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, "'Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant "'that shall not be forgotten. "'My people have been lost sheep. "'Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. "'They have turned them away on the mountains. "'They have gone from mountain to hill. "'They have forgotten their resting place.'" All that found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, We offend not because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. In those days, God says, in those days, Jeremiah writes, when you see that phrase, in those days, there ought to be a prophetic indicator buzzer that goes off in your head. If you see last days, latter days, latter times, in those days, a little buzzer should go off in your head that says, I need to consider this carefully. This language should make our interpretation more careful because we see language that lends itself toward a far fulfillment. And that's exactly what we see. In those days, Jeremiah says, in the days that this will take place upon Babylon, in the days that an enemy will come from the north and destroy them, in those days, what do we see? The children of Israel and the children of Judah will come together weeping and seek the Lord their God. They will turn their faces toward Zion and they will call one another to join themselves unto the Lord. God says in verse six that his people have been lost sheep and he speaks against their shepherds. That's a charge which we read all the way back in Jeremiah 31. We read about it extensively in Ezekiel. He says their shepherds caused them to go astray rather than drawing them near. And because of this, every one, that found them, devoured them. Now consider what we're reading here. A condemnation of the false shepherds. A promise that God would regather not just Judah, but Israel and Judah. This, does not, this has not taken place yet. None of this has taken place in history yet. The regathering of Israel and Judah together. The uh, judgment upon the false shepherds and the, the good shepherd being established. This is stuff that we identify as taking place in the end times. And so we are immediately seeing here, early in Jeremiah 50, that there is a far-reaching vision going on in this prophecy that we just can't ignore. We're not just speaking toward 539 BC. We're not just speaking toward Medo-Persia coming in and overthrowing Babylon. And that's, of course, going to be apparent not just in these clear prophetic markers, but it's going to be apparent even in the manner in which Babylon is said to be overthrown. And we'll see that as we continue. So these adversaries who devoured the nation, they say that they are justified in their actions, we find in verse 7. And they say they're justified because the nation of Israel has sinned against the Lord. And so they say, well, we're right to devour the nation because the nation sinned against the Lord. And that's really kind of where Babylon is at that time in history, right? Babylon is overthrowing Judah, but we have read how the general, Nebuchadnezzar Aden, knew, he knew to look for Jeremiah. He knew that he wanted Jeremiah to be okay. They understood some of these, these prophetic markers, They knew what was going on. They knew their part to play. And yet, we find it's also true that these wicked nations will answer for their sins. And that is what God is speaking of as it relates to Babylon. Verses 8 and 9. He says, Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he goats before the flocks. For lo, I will raise and cause to come upon Babylon an assembly of great nations. Notice the plural here. Great nations from the north country, and they shall set themselves in array against her. From thence she shall be taken. Their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert man. None shall return in vain. Looking forward to that day, God calls for his people to remove out of the midst of Babylon. This is the first of several calls that we're going to see where God says, Get out of Babylon for this day of this overthrow. Once again, we find an inconsistency here with history as it relates to Babylon's overthrow in 539. In 539, there was no battle, per se, that related to their overthrow. It happened in the middle of the night. We can read about that in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar and his feast, and, and then just like that, the kingdom falls, and that's what history tells us as well. On top of that, we know that the Medo-Persian Empire became a fairly safe haven for the Jews for a number of years, um, with the exception of the time in Esther's day uh, for a short period of time when there was a tremendous threat against the nation. That was during the Medo-Persian Empire. So we're seeing some historical inconsistencies that once again cause us to be thinking long-term here. Thinking past 539 BC to some other overthrow. And the scriptures tell us that there will be a great assembly of nations which God will raise up from the north country to come against the city and she will be taken. And once again, we begin to see correlations between this prophecy of Babylon's destruction and the, preaching, and the teachings of the revelation of Jesus Christ as it relates to the city of Babylon, the mother of harlots, who would be destroyed in that day. In Revelation, this city is called the great whore, the woman that rides the beast, the mother of harlots. And we read this in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. That'll be on the right side of the screen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. So in Revelation, just as we see in Jeremiah 50, as we'll see again in Jeremiah 51, verse 6, and and farther in Jeremiah as well, God calls his people to come out from that city, which will be destroyed and take special note of the interplay between the city that would take Judah into captivity and the book of the Revelation. There is no end of speculation specifically within the context of Revelation as to the identity of the whore that rides the beast, of what is called Mystery Babylon. Those of you who were present in the Revelation series, those of you who are present this morning in Sunday school, know my general theory about that. We can talk more about that in a few weeks. But I make the argument in that series that there's a very strong link between the city, as described in Jeremiah's day, and the events of Revelation. And we'll get into more of that, as I said, in the weeks to come. But I want you to have that context as we continue to see the links between Jeremiah's prophecy and Revelation. So we continue in Jeremiah's prophecy, and we read in verses 10 through 12, And Chaldea shall be a spoil, All that spoil her shall be satisfied, saith the Lord. Because ye were glad, because ye rejoiced, O ye destroyers of mine heritage, because ye are grown fat as the heifer at grass, and bellow as bulls. Your mother shall be sore confounded, she that bare you shall be ashamed. Behold, the hindermost of the nation shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. So God speaks beyond just the city here to the whole region of Chaldea saying the whole reason will be a spoil. And notice the reason. The same reason he gave for the destruction of Moab and of Ammon and of Edom, he says because they were glad and rejoiced over Judah's destruction. He is vindicating his people. There is a vindication of God's people here. And we'll see that vindication of God's people in in Revelation 19 as well, won't we? It's possible to imagine a scenario where a nation could see themselves as righteous in their actions against Israel, but also mourn, for the role that God had caused them to play. But that's not what the nations surrounding Israel did. They did not see that they had a role to play and yet mourn what God was doing to His people. They rejoiced in it. They took pleasure in their role. They rejoiced over the nation's downfall. So, God says, their mother, likely speaking of the capital of Babylon here, their mother would be confounded and ashamed because the region will become a wilderness in the desert, infertile, and useless. Verses 13 through 16. Because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goeth by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at all her plagues. Put yourselves in array against Babylon round about, all ye that bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she hath sinned against the Lord. Shout against her roundabout, she hath given her hand, her foundations are fallen, her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance upon her, as she hath done do unto her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him that handleth, handleth the sickle in the time of harvest. For fear of the oppressing sword shall they turn everyone to his people, and they shall flee everyone to his own land." God continues to describe the fall of Babylon. The wrath of the Lord will cause the land to become desolate, he says. And notice again the correlations between this passage here and Revelation. This was supposed to be side by side. I'm sorry, there looks to be some formatting issues here. But uh, I'll read it for you. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, as we just read, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. So in both passages, we see this statement of the reality of the plagues that would come upon Babylon. But we also see in verse 19, a similar thing. And this one comes off the screen a little bit. My apologies. It says in in Revelation 18, 19, and they cast dust upon their heads and cried weeping and wailing saying, alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea, by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. So again, in verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 50, we find the command that she would be made desolate, and then, or the, the call that she would be made desolate, and we see that same reality come forth in the declaration in Revelation 18, verse 19, of this city. So that everyone that goes by would be astonished, Notice at the same time, it also says that her walls would be fallen. Her walls would be thrown down. Her foundations are fallen. None of that happened in 539 BC. Babylon would not be, the the city of Babylon, the walls of Babylon would not fall for generations. Throughout the entirety of the Medo-Persian Empire, Babylon stood. Babylon stood tall and stood strong. Babylon was not overthrown in that sense in 539. There's something deeper here than just the fall of Babylon to the Medo Persian Empire. We see that to be true. So God speaks to this desolation. The walls would be thrown down, the foundations fallen, the vengeance of the Lord would fall hard upon this nation, that her economy would be cut off, and that everyone would flee from dealing with the nation because Babylon was effectively a curse. Verses 17 and 18. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the kings of Assyria hath devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his lands, as I have punished the king of Assyria. So God turns his attention toward a localized idea here, right? We see him come back to the nation of Israel, to to uh, the the... Contrast between Babylon and Assyria and turning his attention back to the place where Israel would be prior to this judgment. First, by the king of Assyria during the captivity of the northern tribes. That took place around 740 B.C. So remember, we are, um, in these prophecies, in Jeremiah 51, we're going to find that these prophecies took place in the fourth year of Zedekiah. So we're not actually, Jeremiah is not writing these things after the fall of after the fall of Jerusalem. He's writing them before the fall of Jerusalem. And so we're probably somewhere around 590, 592, when these things are written. And the judgment of the northern tribes of Israel, the fall of the northern tribes to Assyria, that took place in 740. So uh, about 100 years, a little less than 100 years before. And then, of course, we see the king of Babylon, and the statement that the king of Babylon would be the final nail in this coffin of Judah and Israel as they would be scattered like sheep, the lions having driven them away. And as God likens these two captivities, so too God likens the two judgments. The judgment of Assyria already took place at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and it would culminate in the sacking and burning of Asher and Nineveh in 612 BC. Assyria still did exist at this time in history. It, would, uh, it was not yet gone, uh, but it would soon take place. Verses 19 and 20. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation, and he shall feed upon Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. The sins of Judah and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. Once again, God turns his attention toward that day that promise that we talked about as we observed together the Lord's Supper this evening in Jeremiah chapter 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love and the day that God says he would give them a new heart and he would put into them a new desire and they would be his people and he would be their God. We see that idea and God says that the soul of Israel would be satisfied upon the, upon the mounts of Ephraim and Gilead. They'll be satisfied with that which the Lord has given to him. Both of these regions speaking, by the way, toward the northern tribes of Israel that went into captivity with the Assyrians. And we can be, find comfort as we see the unification of Israel and Judah, God expressing this contrast in verse 20, saying that the iniquity of Israel will be sought for but not found. The sins of Judah too will not be found because they will have been washed away. He will pardon them whom he reserves. For indeed God has reserved for all time his people for himself. In light of our end times context here, we would understand the idea of the ones who God reserves to be those who make it to the other side of the tribulation, those who enter into the millennial kingdom, those who will see the kingdom of God come upon this earth, those who are of God's people, as the scriptures tell us, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, so all Israel shall be saved. Revelation uh, in, in Romans chapter 11. Now, that does not mean that everybody who is an Israelite throughout history will be saved, right? That means that there's coming a time when Jesus Christ will return, and at that time, the nation will finally receive him as their Messiah. And there will be a wholesale turning to the Lord. Verses 21 through 27 Go up against the land of Merathaim, even against it, and against the inhabitants of Pekud. Waste and utterly destroy after them, saith the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded thee. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How is Babylon become a desolation among the nations? I have laid a snare for thee, and thou uh, art also taken. O Babylon, and thou wast not aware. Thou art found and also caught, because thou hast striven against the Lord. The Lord hath opened his armory and hath brought forth the weapons of his indignation, for this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the utmost border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bullocks. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe unto them, for their day is come, the time Of their visitation. Jeremiah calls Babylon here the land of Merathaim and Pekad. Merathaim means double bitterness, Pekad meaning destruction. Thus, Babylon is called the land of double bitterness and destruction here. So it is that we see the tremendous, tremendous evil that God intends against this city. He calls for the destroyer to come against her and to do all that God has commanded. And this leads us almost to a lamentation of sorts for Babylon. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder, God says. How is Babylon become a desolation? And we see this again echoing the words of Revelation uh, chapter 18, verse 11. The Bible says, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn for her, for no man buyeth their merchandise. So we see this lamentation reflected as well in, in Revelation chapter 18 that there will be those who lament for the destruction of Babylon in that day. And God describes how he's determined to war against the city and to overcome it, that this day of judgment is at hand. We continue in verses 28 through 32, and the Bible tells us this. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all ye that bend the bow. Camp against it round about. Let none thereof escape. Recompense her according to her work, according to all that she hath done. Do unto her, for she hath been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore shall her young men fall in the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, saith the Lord. Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. And the most proud shall stumble and fall, and none shall raise him up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it shall devour all round about him. The operative word in this section of Scripture is the word proud. God emphasizes that it is the pride of, Of this nation. It is the pride of this city. It is the pride of this system that has brought them to the place where God must now oppose and destroy them. He will resist them. He will judge them. And this is the legacy of the proud. In every generation, they will stumble and fall. God says he will kindle a fire in her cities because this nation, this institution was proud. Thinking all the way back to the Tower of Babel, let us make brick that we may build a tower and make for ourselves a name. Pride. As we see God promised to kindle a fire in her cities, we again reflect upon Revelation chapter 18, verse 8, which says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. She shall be utterly burned with fire. Death, mourning, and famine. That threefold idea of plagues, right? Just as we've seen throughout Jeremiah. Verses 33 and 34. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He shall truly plead their cause, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. God again turns his mind toward Israel and Judah. They were oppressed together. Their captives held them fast. Assyria on the one hand and Babylon on the other. But God says, but their Redeemer is strong. Because he's the Lord of hosts, he will plead for them and Babylon will be disquieted. God emphasizes the sword of the Lord directed toward these godless nations. Verses 35 through 39. A sword is upon the Chaldeans, saith the Lord, and upon the inhabitants of Babylon and upon her princes and upon her wise men. A sword is upon the liars and they shall dote. A sword is upon her mighty men, and they shall be dismayed. A sword is upon their horses and upon their chariots and upon all the mingled people that are in the midst of her, and they shall become as women. A sword is upon her treasures, and they shall be robbed. A drought is upon her waters, they shall be dried up, for it is the land of graven images, and they are mad upon their idols. Therefore the wild beasts of the desert with the wild beasts of the islands shall dwell there. And the owls shall dwell therein, and it shall be no more inhabited forever, neither shall it dwell, uh, be dwelt in from generation to generation. So God proclaims this tremendous sword upon the Chaldeans and upon this city and her princes and her wise men and her liars and her mighty men and her horses and her chariots and her treasures and her crops and her rivers and everything about her, a drought upon the waters, wild beasts dwelling where once men were from generation to generation. And this is a desolation that we have actually not seen to this point, again, in the region of Babylon. But we do see it in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, which says, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And we'll see some other very similar statements to Revelation 8, 20, 18, 21 in Jeremiah 51. Continuing as we hasten through, verses 40 to 43, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell there. Behold, a people shall come from the north and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the coast of the earth. A great nation and many kings. might sound kind of like a woman who rides a beast. A beast with seven heads and ten horns that turns around and destroys the woman. A great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the coast of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel. They will not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea and they shall ride upon horses. Everyone put in array like a man to the battle against thee, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon hath heard the report of them, and his hands waxed feeble. Anguish took hold of him, and pangs as of a woman in travail. So God likens that destruction, the destruction of Babylon, to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. We made that link this morning. I'll be making it again in a, in a future message. He states that the hand will be from, from the people of the north, and I just drew that link to the promise in Revelation 17. We'll see it uh, a little bit closer as we get toward that last message here in a few weeks of Babylon. Go read Revelation 17, those first verses, as it relates the nature of that destruction, and you'll see that there will be many kings who come against the woman that rides the beast. And what we find as we go throughout those chapters is that the economic world wails for Babylon. Babylon but these kings that confederated themselves with the beast will rejoice over her downfall. Very similar to what we're reading here in Jeremiah 50. Very similar. As we see any number of people bewailing Babylon, but these kings will come against her, and these kings will destroy her. Thus causing the king of Babylon to fear and to wax feeble. So the chapter finishes in verses 44 through 46. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan unto the habitation of the strong, but I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is the chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? And who will appoint me the time? And who is that shepherd that will stand before me? Therefore hear ye the counsel of the Lord that he hath taken against Babylon. And his purpose is that he hath purposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their habitation desolate with them. And the noise of the taking of Babylon, uh, and, excuse me, at the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth is moved, and the cry is heard among the nations. Jeremiah speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as a lion swelling over the Jordan. This is almost verbatim what God said of Edom in Jeremiah chapter forty-nine, verses nineteen through twenty-one. And this is because in the timetable of events, as we'll see in the next chapter, as I said, Jeremiah is writing this in the fourth year of Zedekiah, seven years before Babylon is overthrown, uh, overthrows Judah completely, I mean. So God calls for a chosen man. He says, who is the chosen man to repel them? Who is like him? Who will be the shepherd to stand before him? And if our prophetic context is any clue... The chosen one to stand before God who is like him and who will be a shepherd before him is none other than Messiah himself. So sure is the destruction that even the least of them will be overcome. And the whole earth will be moved at the taking of Babylon. Next week we'll continue this consideration in chapter 51. We'll hope to put more of these puzzle pieces together. But I'd like to apply this evening before we close. And there's one phrase I would like to key in on today. These are long chapters. There's a lot to cover. Sometimes I fall into summary mode. And if this was just a long chapter talking about judgment, I'd fall into summary mode where I don't read every verse. But I think we need to read these verses because I want you to key them into Revelation 17 and 18. And I want to make sure that we don't skip that stuff. But something which has become ever more apparent in this chapter of judgment is that judgment is not just about God avenging himself. It's about God avenging his people, right? In verse 34 of this chapter, God told Babylon that Israel's Redeemer is strong. Israel's Redeemer is strong. What I'd like us to carry with us this evening, among perhaps other things that the Lord is doing in your heart, is to remember this. Remember that your Redeemer is strong. We live in a world full of wrongs, of evil. And as believers, we are called to be different from the world around us. As believers, one of the intrinsic values by which we know the believers is that we assume that Revelation 12, 21 idea, that call, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good, Brethren, avenge not yourselves, right? First Peter is a book that exhorts us to suffer those wrongs that are done against us in patience. Better to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. 1 Peter 2.20. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults you take it patiently, but if when you do well and suffer for it you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. It, it is not our right God has not given his people the right to avenge ourselves, to justify ourselves, to fight for ourselves. We defer such vengeance in faith. We defer this right because of an indelible biblical assurance. And the biblical assurance that gives us the confidence to defer this right to defend ourselves is that our Redeemer is strong. So that Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 20, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head there's only one way possible that the believer called to live in a manner that naturally and inevitably puts him into contradiction with the world around him only one way that we as believers could ever have the confidence to live such a yielded life and it is that our believe our redeemer is strong we take all of the confidence that I would desire to put into my own vengeance to my own power to my own abilities to my my, 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 my uh, um, conviction that I should use the methods that are being used against me against them and I pour all of that zeal and I pour all of that frustration and I pour it into this confidence that my redeemer is strong and those who place themselves on the wrong side of god 's people should not necessarily expect great resistance from them. But they can expect one day great judgment from the Lord. Because the Lord has commanded us not to resist. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, we talked this morning in Sunday school about the fact that we can get so caught up when we're studying the book of the Revelation about the stuff that's between the lines. What is Mystery Babylon? What's the identity of Mystery Babylon that that we can fail to see what the lines actually hold? You want to know what one of the things that those lines in Revelation 17 and 18 actually hold? That I can live this way. I can live in this manner. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. I can do that now because the Lord will take care of me. My Redeemer is strong. There's coming a day when the Lamb of God Will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And on that day, your Redeemer will fight for you. He will fight for those who refuse to fight for themselves. He will avenge those who have not avenged themselves. He will redeem us as he has promised, and nothing will oppose him, for nothing can oppose him. Because your Redeemer is strong. How are you doing this evening in that regard? As we see the exhortations of Scripture to call us unto this manner of living in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Perhaps you're a little bit worn down. You're a little bit weary. Our brother this evening prayed as it related to the Lord's will for the future of this country. And it doesn't look good right now the evil that has found a voice within the last decade is sweeping across the Western world. There's a dominance to this evil that would see everything in its path destroyed. Casualties doesn't matter. Collateral damage doesn't matter. And in that environment, we need to remember that our Redeemer is strong. It is in just such an environment into which we see this nation hurtling. It is in just such an environment where we are noticing that there's so little in common now between us and, and the world around us, between us and the culture in which we live, that, that they are not just not walking the same path anymore, but they're butting heads at every turn. And it is within this environment that we need to be reminded that our Redeemer is strong. See, because it's very clear how God wants us to react to to, to those who have made themselves our enemies. It's very clear how God has called us to react to the evil that is around us. But what what gives us the confidence to do so is this right here, that our Redeemer is strong. May this truth fill us with the hope of our salvation. May it reinvigorate us to live our lives in the integrity of Christ's commands. May it set the context for our expectations of this world and the world that is to come. And may we never forget it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.